0: If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to Psalm 13. If you're using a pew Bible, that's 852, page number 852. And I'm going to read it in just a few minutes. Um, as, I, as I read Psalm 13 and some of the other what are called lament psalms, psalms of sadness and crying out to God and saying, where are you, God? Um, one, of the, one of the controversies that it brought up for me was what I call the footprints controversy. That is that people in the church usually either think that the poem Footprints is the greatest piece of art ever created by the human race or the most cliched piece of stupidity they've ever read. Um, I actually um, sympathize a little bit with both because the first time I read it, I thought it was kind of cute. And now the older I've gotten, the more I just like it. But um, it's, essentially it's a story about, you know, G- this dream and Jesus and this guy are walking down the beach and they look back and there's two sets of footprints when Jesus is walking with them. And then there's these stretches, only one set of footprints. And the, the guy asks, Jesus, you know, um, I noticed that these are the hardest times of my life. Did you abandon me? And, and then you get the like the bathroom shell that says where Jesus says, um, where you saw only one set of print- footprint. It was then that I carried you. Which, yeah, which um, one of the one of the um, a- uh, the uh, axioms that I used to teach in my um, my Florida internships was that any truth, no matter how important and no matter how poignant, can sound ridiculous if said in the right tone of voice. Which you should remember for when you watch cable television. I actually like this ending a lot better which would make a great YouTube video if anybody wanted to create it, where it's like, my child, I never left you. Those places were one set of footprints. It was then that I carried you. And that long groove over there was when I dragged you for a while. (laughs) 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 The Lament Psalms and this, and it's all, it's meant to be a funny way of bringing up one of the most universal problems, the strongest objection to faith, and one of the deepest struggles of every human being. And that is the, that is the questions surrounding the hiddenness and silence of God. Um, I was having lunch with a Christian philosopher this week who's in town who I have a lot of respect for and he said he said honestly the the question of the hiddenness and silence of God is larger today even than the problem of suffering it is what the problem of suffering used to be it is everyone's objection and dealing with divine hiddenness is inescapable everybody has to deal with it whether it's um, a pessimistic or a glib way of dealing with it, be like, well, is just a God? Or whether it's one that you believe in God, but that you constantly are trying to figure out why is relating to God like this? Um, you see this in the history of unbelief, right? Friedrich Nietzsche, the guy with the large mustache, said in Daybreak, a God who is all-knowing and all-powerful and who does not even make sure that his creatures understand his intention. Could that be a God of goodness? Who allows countless doubts and uncertainties to persist for thousands of years, as though the salvation of mankind were unaffected by them, would he not be a cruel God if he possessed the truth and could behold mankind miserably tormenting itself over that truth and do nothing? Jamie Kilstein, the tattooed feller, um, this is from a quote from a YouTube video with seven hundred thousand plus views. He said, Listen, if I get to heaven, there's a God, and he's like, You're wrong. How did you live your life? I'd say, I tried to help people. I tried to give to charity. I didn't know if you were real. There was no evidence. And if he said, well, you didn't worship me every day, then I would say, fine. Send me wherever is as far away from you as possible because you are a sociopath. Which is just a more immature and annoying way of saying what Bertrand Russell said on his deathbed when a priest asked him, if you do die and when you do die and if you go to heaven and there's a God, what are you going to say to him? And Russell is said to have remarked, I would say, sir, in addressing God, sir, it appears as though my atheistic hypothesis was erroneous. Would you mind answering me one wee little question? Why didn't you give us more evidence? I hope that went well. <laughs> now, th- what, this is not just an argument that unbelievers are ha- believers are having with unbelievers— Right? This is an argument that believers are having with themselves. And clearly from Psalm 13, it's an argument that believers are having with God for thousands of years. Which is a little awkward. It's a little like the wife who goes to a party and her husband gets publicly criticized by some dude. And she steps in and totally defends them. Even though they were having a screaming match about the same thing in the car when she was telling him how big an idiot he was about it. It's a little like that. But you can see this... um, in Psalm 13, I mean, I mean, let's look at the text. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now verse, verse 2 it gets at the heart of this, how it, how it feels, what it's like. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? And then in the, the workings of his life, how long will my enemy triumph over me? In 2007, um, there was a book from the private journal of Mother Teresa that was published called Come Be My Light. Um, the, it had, it, there was a shocking revelation, in it. and it wasn't that Mother Teresa had some kind of illicit affair, that she was laundering money or something like that. That wasn't that what was shocking at all. What was shocking was what she said about her feeling of God's hiddenness from her. Now, I will say this before I read this passage. I want—I've considered actually burning every journal that I've ever written because it turns out that I only ever write in my journal when I want to shoot myself in the head. Okay? I, I mean, I always journal when I'm most depressed. And so if my kids ever get a hold of my journals and they read them, they're going to be like, man, Dad, it was such a downer. But— but it's because that's inactivity. Right? It's, 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 it's not a fair set. People tend to journal more when they're depressed, right? And so I'm not sure that this is a good description of Mother Teresa all the time. But here's what it is a good description of. How Mother Teresa felt when she wrote this journal entry. And this is what it said in one of them. Lord, my God, who am I that you should forsake me, the child of your love? And now I have become the most hated one. The one you have thrown away as unwanted and unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer, no one to whom I can cling. No, no one alone. The darkness is so dark, the loneliness of the heart that wants love is unbearable. Where is my faith? even deep down right in there is nothing but emptiness and darkness my god how painful is this unknown pain it pains without ceasing i am told god loves me and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul though The whole time smiling, sisters and people pass such remarks. They think my faith, trust, and love are filling my very being and that the intimacy with God and his union, my union with him must be absorbing my heart. Could they but know and how my cheerfulness is the cloak by which I cover the emptiness and misery. What are you doing, my God, to one so small? In 1963, um, C.S. Lewis published a book under another name, N.W. Clerk, called The Grief Observed, which were his unguarded journal entries after the death of his very beloved wife, um, Joy David. A brief marriage, a very beloved relationship. In fact, the the kind of ironic thing about it was, because it wasn't published in his name, somebody sent him a copy of it to comfort him in his sorrows. (laughs) Whoops. Whoops. but in one of, the, one of the journal articles, one of the journal entries, he says this, "'No one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. "'I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. "'The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness. "'On the rebound, one passes into tears and pathos, maudlin tears. "'I almost prefer the moments of agony. "'These are at least clean and honest. "'Meanwhile, where is God?' When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will, or so it feels, be welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent in our time of trouble? You can say this about the old cathedrals. This is Notre Dame. They were they were created not to be little cozy places where we could all talk about Jesus being our personal friend. They were high places. They were echoey. They felt empty. They, it felt like the universe was big and that you were small in it. They were, they were built to communicate a transcendent God who revealed himself darkly, right? That's why there was so much talk of the old saints, right? They were saints, they were just people. They might be good examples, but at least you could tell their stories and you could know more about And There were lots of stories that way, right? One of the things that we have to think about is that not only is that all true, but actually nowhere is the idea that God is hidden Clearly, More clearly stated and dealt with than in the Bible The Bible reveals God As both a speaking and showing Revealing God And a God who hides himself And is profoundly silent As both Side by side Unmingled and unmitigated And the question that then comes up is, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to deal with it? Because you're going to deal with it. Some of you are dealing with it right now. Some of you would say, I've been dealing with this my whole life. I've I've been dealing with my whole Christian life. Since I thought there was a God, I've been dealing with it. And some of you are going to be dealing with it. Those are really the only options. Even the people whose understanding of faith is always to seek the presence of God, almost all of them will say that there were seasons or periods that were very long, that were very difficult. And, and nobody has tea with Jesus. Even the people who talk about feeling the presence of God, what they mean by that is an internal impression, a picture in the vision of the mind, a, a, a sense or a feeling that comes in that within the scope of your experience, you, you believe it's God doing something. All of that is great, but none of that is self-interpreting. And so when you look at for example Isaiah 45:15 it says this Truly you are a god who hides himself O God the savior of Israel Blaise Pascal commenting on this idea in the Bible in Pense's 228 thought 228 says this What do the biblical prophets say about Jesus Christ that he will be plainly God No but that he is a truly hidden God and that he will not be recognized and that people will not believe it is he and that he will be a stumbling block on which many will fall, etc. But let us, meaning us Christians who say that this biblical God is real, let us not be criticized for lack of clarity since we openly profess its intentionality. Or in Mark's gospel, 9 to 12, after Jesus tells the parable of the sower. People, they said, well, Jesus, why do you talk like that? And most of us say, well, Jesus told stories because everybody understands stories, right? Isn't that the reason? Well, here's, Jesus gives his reason. He says... The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing and never perceiving, be ever hearing and never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. And then he said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Which is hilarious because he's saying, I say it so that people won't understand it. Are you kidding me? You don't understand it? This story is so simple. Now, I can't get into all that. And he's not saying, I'm speaking in parables so that nobody can come to me. In the larger context of the gospel, what he's saying is that, that for those who see it, they see it. They have ears to hear. They hear it, they go, oh, that makes perfect sense. And those who won't hear it, as an act of will more than an act of mind, they don't see it because they won't see it. And the parable distinguishes those two groups by revealing the soul in the hearer. Which is why Jesus ended a number of his parables. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That it was not a reference to biological presence. It's not not a reference to lobes. It's a reference to to willingness to hear and accept. Does that make sense? So here's, here's what I think we need to think about this morning. There's... There's three things that we need to take from this whole question and specifically related to the psalm. One is, there are good and helpful ways to think about this. We are not lost in a, in a sea of nothingness and related to God's apparent hiddenness or silence on, in certain ways. Two, there are, there are right ways to emote. This is not just some separate, rationalistic, cerebral event. We are ensouled, embodied, emotional, willed beings. And if you just go, well. Oh, doesn't make sense to me That's not how we work there's, There are right ways to emote And then there are right things to do with our will Which I'll get to The first, and this might be a little thick But I, th- I feel like it needs to be done Is how, to th- how do you think about this? How do you think about this issue? The first, there's, there's three things just to preface this with And one is that the, this problem only exists If we're talking about a revealed God because if 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 the god of the scriptures wasn't a speaking and showing god then this would not be a discussion because there would be no there would be no tension we'd just look at the world and the world would look big and beautiful and terrible and deadly and we'd say something like if there's a god out there we probably should be relatively reverent to the thought of it's a, him or his existence or whatever or her or something but that God clearly doesn't care about us, and it wouldn't be a problem, you see. The problem comes when God reveals himself in time-space history as a loving, caring God. A God who is like a perfect parent, a God who is Father. The, the minute God comes in and says that he, that he loves you, he cares about you, he wants your redemption, he wants to transform you into the image of his Son, he wants to bring you... Into heaven forever. He wants to forgive your sins. He wants to—that you matter profoundly as an individual in the sea of stuff. That's when it becomes a problem. Because now you have what you experience, which feels like this hiddenness, and yet you have a God who reveals himself as a loving, caring, acting, showing, speaking, revealing God. That's the issue. The only reason we're having a discussion about this is because God is a God who doesn't just hide— but shows, reveals, and speaks. The second thing to recognize is that whenever you're dealing with a question that is powerful because it seems like there could be no answer to it, you actually don't need the answer. You only need a possible answer. Now, a lot of people overlook this, but it's a standard philosophical principle. If, if somebody offers an objection, and the, the objection basically has built into it this idea, there's no possible answer to this question. All you have to do to to defeat that objection is to show that there might be an answer that's rational. It doesn't have to be the right answer. Because the whole objection is based on the idea that there is no answer. So so when we deal with two of the hardest questions about God's existence, the the problem of divine hiddenness and the problem of suffering— In order to trust God, you actually don't need a complete answer of why is there suffering and why is God hidden. All you need is a logically rational possibility. Because if there is one, then God may very well have an answer that you don't know. And if God is to be trusted for other reasons that are sufficient and helpful, then it's perfectly rational to trust him. Does that make sense? If, you, if, it's, if it's reasonable to have faith in God on other grounds, and that objection is, is answered in that way, it makes perfect sense to trust God. You don't have to have the answer to this question in order to move forward in faith. Does that make sense? Okay, so what's the argument? This is how—for some people, especially if you're skeptical on this, sometimes it's good to be able to look at the argument. Here's how the argument lays out, right? The biblical God exists— God is mostly hidden. That is, the evidence of God is inconclusive. Three, there's no good reason for that. Right? If those three premises are true, then premise four is true. That God must be either negligent, inept, or weak. Right? But the biblical God is none of those three things. So if four is true, one can't be true. Right? If four is true, then the biblical God doesn't exist. Therefore, the biblical God doesn't exist. That's how the problem lays out. Now, that's perfectly rational. So if that's not true—if six isn't true, then one of those is false or more than one of those is false. Does that make sense? There's two premises that are objectionable in that argument. One is that God is mostly hidden and the evidence for him is inconclusive. I'm going to talk about that next week when I talk about Psalm 19. But the third one is also objectionable, and that is that there's no good reason for the amount of divine hiddenness that there is. I want to talk about that for just a minute. So I'll talk about objections number two next week when I talk about God's revelation of himself. Now, rem- now remember, I'm not trying to completely answer the question. If there's even one possible answer that could theoretically work, then the objection doesn't succeed. Do you understand that philosophically? Okay. You having fun? Okay the way people theologians and biblical pastors seem to defend this is in a number of different families. And listen, any one of these really requires like a 45-minute lecture to really bring out. Okay, so I'm just gonna give you this sketch of what it would look like, okay? The one concerning preserving freedom goes something like this. God has chosen for some reason we may not completely understand to hold the human will as inviolable—that That is, he will not violate it. That for some reason, God has chosen that human freedom has an intrinsic value that he will not violate. That is, every human gets to be a human. Every being is a being, and every person is a person. And even if you want God to violate it, he won't. Now, you might very well say, well, listen, if it's me living or dying, I would very—just assume God violate my will in order to do that. That I would—that I'd be okay. Okay, fine. I understand that's how you feel, but it may be for perfectly right and rational purposes of justice or goodness or truth. God may have chosen not to do that. And you can see this in certain passages I preached on last year in First Corinthians about the human conscience, where Paul said, do not violate your conscience. There's something—if if you do anything, don't—never violate your conscience, because it's, it's kind of the seat of who you are. And if you do that— that, that will take you somewhere you don't want to go. Well, if the one thing you cannot violate is your conscience, why has God spoken that that's the one thing you dare not violate? It may be theologically possible that that is one of the, th- one of the only things He has chosen not to violate. And the minute you allow for your will to be involuble, then you've also allowed for your willfulness and personal delusion to create a feeling of divine hiddenness that's profound. That's all I can say about that. Moving on. The second is soul-making. And that is that there is something, there is some way in which God uses his, his hiddenness or his silence to form you in a certain way or to reveal who you really are for purposes of judgment or salvation. Right? This is a little bit more difficult one, and I don't think this is the best objection, but remember, if any of these work, the whole argument works. Does that make sense? Um... So, for example, um, there's, a, there's a chess teacher that apparently is very sought after named um, Bruce Pendolfini. And apparently this guy never tells chess players what to do or how to play chess. He won't do it. All he will do is ask questions and rephrase them. And apparently he says he'll sit for hours and say nothing to a student. Because he, he doesn't want them to be a chess student, he wants them to be a chess player— And what has to happen for you to become not a chess student but a chess player is you can't just be told what to do with your rook, queen, pawn, or king. You have to realize what is to be done. And that is a kind of internal being that that is not created through the displaying of information, which is ultimately what revelation is. And so divine hiddenness or divine silence could be a pedagogical method to form souls, or to teach. Another example of this is is the order of pedagogy. If you think about—think about the story of Adam and Eve, right? you got Adam and Eve, they're in a garden, they don't know much, there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God says, yeah, don't eat that, uh, eat everything else. And a lot of people look at that and they think, well, that's how it was going to be forever— Right? It was just this tree, and it was just there, and it was annoying, and they were, i mean, what were they supposed to do? But the Bible never actually says it was going to go on just like that forever. In fact, God explicitly said in Genesis 1 that they were going to go out and inhabit the whole earth, and they were going to pop—right? They weren't going to be in that specific situation forever. So, what, what gives? Well, you see, when Augustine wrote about this in the 4th century, he, he said—5th century, sorry—he said, it's pedagogy. God wasn't going to leave them there. He was going to teach them all that stuff, all the stuff they got from the fruit in a way that destroyed them. He was going to teach them in a way that would grow them. But here was the, here's the problem. The first lesson that human beings needed was to unconditionally trust their maker. That's lesson number one. And you've got to get lesson number one or you can't get lessons two through infinity. Because every successive lesson builds on this one. And therefore, especially if we're sinful, forgetful creatures, that lesson has to be built into every successive lesson because that is a lesson we're most prone to forget. Now, if that's true—I'm not arguing it is. I'm saying it could be true. If it's true, then what would be a—what's the fruit mechanism for all of us now in this time in God's working of salvation? Well, I don't see any reason why divine hiddenness or silence cannot function as that mechanism. Especially if the most important thing we have to learn again and again and again and again is that human hubris destroys the mind and leads to delusion, but trust in God opens the mind, opens the soul, and allows God to teach. And it also reveals who we are. Right? I I just can't say anything more about that right now. Sorry. in a number of places in the Bible God's hiddenness is punitive or disciplinary like he does it in response to our sin so there's one point in um, Deuteronomy 31 18 he says Surely I will hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. So God explicitly—now, they haven't done it yet. This is a prediction, right? It's prophetic. He gives them the law. He says, listen, you need to go and and here's what it's going to look like for me to be your God. And he says, but listen, if you turn to other gods, what's going to happen? Well, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be this. But one of the things that's going to happen is God is going to hide himself. Now, why would God do that? Well, there might be a lot of reasons, and I'm just a dude, so how do I know? But here's what one of the reasons might be, that when human beings engage in idolatry, which seems to be what every human being is doing almost all of the time, they're not directly trusting in God, right? The Bible is full of our hearts are little idol factories, right? To quote Calvin. What, what, what would God do? Well, if every, if every kind of revelation that God gives us, any blessing, any, we would ascribe to whatever, we'd keep ascribing to whatever idol we're worshiping, what has to happen, right? We've got to give up the other woman is what's got to happen. The idol has to be given up. Well, how do we get to the end of ourselves with the idol? Well, the idol has to be proven to be nothing, which means God can't keep feeding into that situation. Help! He may have, very well have to withdraw and allow the idol to crumble before we become open enough to be drawn back to the place of that tree and be like, okay, so let's get back to lesson one. Will you trust your maker unconditionally? Because you need that one for all the others. You see, there's, there's a disciplinary that's— and, he, and here's one of the things that— and Pascal argues this about divine hiddenness too. Divine hiddenness can be beneficial or judgmental. It depends on how you respond to it. If God chooses to hide himself in order to judge our pride and to make us humble, and if we get angry about that, it becomes a function that leads to our damnation. It's a function of judgment. If we accept it, and it leads us to trust and to humble our own pride, it's a mechanism of discipline that leads to salvation. It goes both ways. Um, Pascal said it this way in one of the ponces. He says, there is enough light... Illuminate for those who wish to see, and enough darkness for those of a contrary disposition. You see, that's an argument about the revealing power of divine hiddenness, that it reveals who you are. (laughs) You be like, well, if God revealed himself more, it would reveal who he is. And it may be the divine response for God to say, No, no, no. I am revealed and hidden in exactly the right magnitude so that it reveals who you are. There's enough light that if you want to see, you'll see. And there's enough darkness that if you don't, you don't have to. Now, four is in relationship to redemptive realities. What that means is that God's revelation and hiddenness isn't the only thing God is doing. We are not these floating ideas in which God is engaging with floating ideas. We are real human beings in an actual story of redemption, in a real spinning planet, in a real creation in which God is working out purposes of redemption, salvation, judgment, truth, the undoing of injustices, the, the forming of souls, the changing of people's hearts. All that stuff is happening. Whatever reasons we have for any of this has to situate itself in the, in the narrative, the story of reality. And so God may be doing all these other sorts of things. For example, when is Jesus going to be fully revealed to us? Right? Upon his return. But what also happens when that happens? According to scripture, at least, final judgment. The, The period of grace is over. Right? So, there's a certain amount of divine hiddenness that is that is partly related to something else God is doing, like extending the period by which people by grace can come to him. Because once he's here, he's here. And putting your trust in him, that time might just be over. That seems to be what scripture says, isn't it? So part of it is that, how does it fit within the story? It's not, we're not doing logic in a vacuum, right? Now, probably the most likely is number five. Something else we haven't thought of. And what you also have to remember is any experience of divine hiddenness could be any of these things or any combination of these things at any time. So in order for you to know that yours or anybody else's experiences of divine hiddenness prove the non-existence of the biblical God, you would have to know that every experience is not taken into account in the divine mind, not yours, by any of these things or any combination of these things. And listen, I just would like to argue that if you think that, I don't know how you could possibly know that. And so I would argue that if you think you know it, that that's not your rational mind cranking through equations, but that that's emotional hubris. And if the argument isn't that airtight— It's it's like one of those—my wife and I went to Yellowstone this last year, right? And we were sleeping on an air mattress, and there was only a tiny little hole in that air mattress. It was really, really small, and we slept really, really bad. (laughs) Because there are some things only a little tiny hole actually functions to deflate the whole thing. And conclusive arguments about objections of which there can be no answer, that's like a balloon— you only need a tiny hole to deflate that whole thing, philosophically speaking. Now, you can still be angry. You can be angry as long as you want to. I mean, that's just an act of the emotions and the will. Rationally, it doesn't hold air. I'm just saying. And once you recognize that, then you can get to the more constructive questions of, are there other good—see, if, if you're a skeptic, the question is, okay, well then, Nick, are there other good reasons to trust God then? Okay, so you, if, you, if you poke a hole in that objection, I still need other reason to believe. And my response to that is, awesome, and you can come to church because that's what I do every other week. Okay, every other week I do that. Or if you're a believer, how then are you going to deal with how God seems to relate to us in this way? What are you, you going to do? And that gets us to point two, which I promise these other points are going to be shorter. Right? What are the the ways in which we can emote? How do we we direct our emotions and how we feel? Because Psalm 13 is as much an expression of how somebody feels. Yeah, it's rational, but it's experience, right? There's a few of these things. One is, follow the psalmist in making it a question and not an accusation with a period. Apparently, as you read the book of Job and some of these lament psalms, it's okay to accuse God of something as long as there's a question mark at the end. I mean, some of these psalmists say some really, some, some really <laughs> unguarded things to God Almighty. But they have question marks at the end of them. And that's one of the things we can learn about faith's response to God. Because obviously, the Bible is very clear that you should be authentic, right? I mean, who talks to people who can kill him this way? People who believe in the God of the Bible do. That's who. They say, how long will you ignore me? How long will you do nothing? How long will you—I mean, think about Lewis. Just shut a door. I mean, I don't know if you noticed this, but when Lewis said, how can he be so present when we're doing well? And so so not an ever-present help. That he was quoting a Bible verse. He was saying, that, that Bible verse is wrong. That's what he was doing. Question mark. Right? So when you're going to—when you feel like that, say it. I mean, say what you're really feeling. But, listen— but recognize in there somewhere that who you're talking to. An infinitely more complex, infinitely more wise, infinitely morally superior to you being that probably has a pile of webbed out answers that you can't even get your little IQ around for why he's doing so, and you don't understand it, and who I don't know how that— But listen, say it. Say what you feel, but put a question mark at the end of it. The second no, oh, wrong way, sorry—the second is ask the one you're accusing for help. The one you just said, you're never going to help me, why don't you help me? You don't, see, you don't care about me. Do you know what happens in the very next verses? What does he do? Look at me and answer me, O Yahweh. My God, give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death. My enemies will say, You know what he's saying? He's saying, I don't have another, I don't have another hope. I don't, I don't have another plan. I'm not going to turn to Baal or some idol. I'm not even going to trust in myself and, and be like my own man and be a good little atheist who hates God. I'm going I'm, to—I I recognize I don't even think you care hardly. I don't even know what's going on up there with you. But please help me. Do you see what he's doing? The very one he's accusing of not caring, he's asking for help. Now that might sound ridiculous to you, but remember he's emoting right now that he's not writing a syllogism. Because human beings aren't sheer logic. And so he's recognizing that he's probably wrong, and that God is actually probably good, and that he should probably ask for help. And at least it's going to get him in the right place emotionally. The other thing, and this isn't directly in the psalm, but you need to know this about when you're in this place, is don't go with your instincts. Emotional crises that cause you to write poems like this are not times when you're thinking emotionally clearly, right? I remember hearing a talk by a guy when he he got an incurable form of cancer, and he said he was told before he went in for his first treatment to write a series of letters to himself. For when he was like all the way him, the bottom, when he was ready to just die, write a letter to yourself to encourage you that you want to live, you want to be there for your family, you don't want to die, so that when you're there, you can read your own letter to yourself. Why? Why is that? What we're saying is, now that you're still in a state of mind where you can think somewhat clearly, you're going to be in a state of mind where you don't. And so write to yourself, so that when, you're, when you can't think you will have already thought, and you can read your own thoughts that are clear. You have to know—it's one of the reasons why when somebody dies, what's the first person somebody like me, when I show up, does when somebody's lost a loved one? Especially a spouse. People have been married 30 years, right? One of them suddenly dies, and, you know, the pastor shows up to give his grief counseling. One of the things I always say is, listen, you don't say this before the funeral, but kind of afterwards, you tell them, listen, don't make any big decisions for at least a year. You always say that to people because they'll sell their house and move to Barbados and in 12 months they'll wonder what the heck they were doing, you know? Or they'll throw away everything that reminds them of that person, thinking that'll help. And then when they actually kind of get past that, they'll wish they had those reminders or so on. You're not thinking clearly. You're not making good decisions. And you need to realize that when you are at the very bottom and you just want to flick God off and just say you hate him and walk away, that is exactly the moment you need to remember that you are crazy, Lewis, actually later in the book of Grief, observed, after he wrote what I read to you earlier, he wrote this, "'I've gradually been coming to feel "'that the door is no longer shut and bolted. "'I was actually like a drowning man who can't be helped "'because he clutches and grabs.'" See, he thought of of himself as somebody like honestly coming to God, just knocking and just wanting some help. And, oh God, would you please just talk to me? He's like, no, I was really like that guy who fell out of a boat and couldn't swim and was flipping around. And if you try to save that person, they'll kill you. And they can't, you can't help them. Who's ever been a lifeguard, right? What do you do with somebody who's like that? You got two choices, right? A, push them under. Two, just wait, right? You just got to wait till they tire out, even if they go under. You can revive them as long as you're alive. But if you go out there and they drown you too, it's not going to work. And you see, when we're in this state of mind, we get like that. That's what happens. You want to believe you're a rational being? Listen, when Luther said reason is a prostitute, he really said the W word, but I'm not supposed to say that, I don't think, um, on Sunday. He didn't mean let's not be philosophical, he didn't mean let's not be rational, let's not think. That's not what he meant. He meant you're not nearly as rational as you think you are. Your emotions grab your reason by the tail and swing it around all the time, and yet still have the ability to get into your reason and convince you that's not what you're doing. You're just thinking rationally. That's what Luther meant. And that's why he said, therefore, faith is so important. Let's move on, sorry. This is also not in the psalm, but it's what the psalmist is doing. And that is, you've got to dig, man. Listen, um, the Bible says in a bunch of places, you've got to seek. Even when you're here, that's why, that's why you write this psalm. That's why you pray this prayer. That's why you say, God... Man, I wish I could choke you right now. I'm so mad. What are you doing? That's, why do you do that? Just to move further away from God? No, because that's the only way you know how to dig right now. That's the only way you know how to seek because that's the only way you know how to keep having a conversation with God. And you know better to pray than not pray. So just keep putting on question marks and then try to be open to the, your answerless questions having answers. Because you've got to seek. There's a number of places in the Bible that say this. It's in Jeremiah 29, 13. But Matthew 7 and 8 says this. I mean, this is the Jesus that the prophets say would in some ways be hidden. But he's also the perfect image and revelation of God. And he said this. He said, listen, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. I mean, he said that with a straight face. That was not That was not a joke. And so, one of the most difficult things to do is to seek when you feel like you're in this place. When you, th- when you think you've hit rock. You've dug, you've dug, you've dug. Surely there's something deeper here, and you feel like your pickaxe hits, hits stone. And you're like, crap. But who's ever, who's ever dug past that? Do you remember doing that? I remember when I was a kid. I hit that stone, and what did I do when I was seven? I just gave up, right? Just gave up. But what did I learn to do by the time I was 20? In certain cases, because I was a farm boy. That rock probably doesn't go infinitely in every direction, right? You've got to dig around it. So dig that way until you find an edge and then dig it. And ultimately, that rock comes up. You just got to do that. You got to go in a different direction. You got to try—you got to keep— You can't just go, ding! Well, well, that's it. That's all there is. And maybe—listen—maybe that will— exponentially expand who you are as a human being when you do that work and maybe you need it and maybe 10,000 years into eternity if they even talk like that you will look at that as the place where you re-became an actual human that could be in the image of God and understand what Jesus was doing and what it meant to follow and serve Almost everyone who comes out on faith on the other side of extremely painful circumstances will tell you it was those circumstances that made them who they are. Almost everyone. Which leads—this is the fifth thing you need to do emotionally. You need to set your will like it's a broken bone. You need to realize that your will has lost its integrity— It needs to go back into the place it was the last time it had had integrity, and it needs to get braced until it can bear weight again. And that's really the third point, isn't it? The work of setting your will. How do you do that? And it's right here in the last verses. It's right in the psalm. The psalmist does it. He talks to God. He asks God for help. He does the praying part. And then he realizes that something's got to happen in here. He's got to exercise faith. That even when he has no faith— He realizes that he needs to exercise faith. And it's not because he's going to check his brain at the door. That it's totally irrational to have faith, but he's going to put his brain over here and just have faith. No, what he realizes is that his real problem is he's in emotional turmoil. How do you get out of emotional turmoil? There's certain things you have to do... To recover from it and you've got to set your will in that direction. And so he's, this is what he, he does three things. He looks back because for him this faith decision has already happened. He realizes he's not in a good state of consciousness. He knows for years he's trusted and depended on God and he believes that. And so he looks back and he says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. Right? That word has said, steadfast. It doesn't end. It never stops. God, just because God stuck with me all those years and now it feels like he's totally gone. But wait a second. Wait a second. I'm in the pit right now. That's what I believe. And I believe that right now. I wrote a letter to myself, right? And then he anticipates, right? He looks forward. He says, I'm not always going to be here. I'm not always going to be here. I am, I am going—my heart will rejoice in your salvation. That day is coming. It may not come for a while. It may come after I'm dead. But it is coming. And he, he comforts himself by looking forward to that moment. And then he recognizes then to, to imbibe that, to feel it. For it to kind of come out of him, for him to get into a different place, he has to do something. Because we're emotive, physical beings. We're rational animals, to quote Aristotle. That is, there's more to do than just try to think your way out of stuff. When you didn't think your way into the thing, that's probably not the solution. The solution to every question isn't rational. Sometimes you have to exercise faith. In this case, he does it. He says, I'm going to sing to the Lord. He's been good to me. I'm just going to sing. I don't really feel it right now but but I'm gonna do it there was this time when I was in seminary I was youth pastoring and um, I got vertigo have you ever had that? it's awful it's awful I was playing a softball game one day and I'm a, I'm a decent softball player somebody hit this little blooper and I was like oh I got that and I just like fell down and crashed didn't catch the ball and I was like what's wrong? I couldn't hardly stand up I was in the bed like nine days Couldn't move Just to move my head like this much Just to hurt a lot And my wife called the doctor She's like, yeah, it's just going to take a few days Just let, him, let it run its course But it was like, you know, a, a while later And I mean, I mean, I'm a joker And, and this, this girl, Megan, from the youth group Came to visit me And um, <clears throat> the only joke I could make was I, I, did, a, I did a poop impression that was, that was all I could do It was bad and so finally, um, my wife called the doctor, and he's like, yeah, you know, he should be better. And I just wasn't. And so my wife was kind of like, look, you got to get up. And I was like, baby, you don't know what this feels like. It is, it is, it hurts. She's like, I know. You're going to get up. And she was very insistent. And like, I mean, and it was, I mean, it was, it was awful. I mean, it felt, I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't see straight. My head just Pounded and pounded and pounded and say, no, just lay down, just stay still, just, just wallow in it, just wallow in it. And it was it was hours of that. <clears throat> and a couple days later I was normal. It was the last thing I wanted to do was get up. And here's what you need to understand: doubt produces passivity. And passivity will kill. This is why you have to know how to handle this problem. Because Intellectual doubt, or whatever creates doubt, which could be a lot of different things, produces an emotional and intellectual and a will based passivity. That passivity devours faith and creates more passivity, and it leads towards the loss of trust. And so, at some point, there has to be an action. You have to set your will. You have to say, No, this is what I believe. I'm going to go back to the point of integrity. And th- why do you think we have church? Why do we pray for each other? It's the cast. You go back, you set that will, and then you get around people who can like hold you up while you, while you exert faith and get rolling again until there's enough structural integrity to your soul that you can walk by yourself. About by that time, somebody else will be falling apart. You got to help them. So this is how we're going to end. I mean, end the last few services is this is what the guy said. He said, I, I know I've trusted in you when I was thinking straight, and I know I'm gonna, my heart's gonna rejoice in you. And so right now, I'm gonna sing with joy to the Lord. I'm gonna sing to the Lord, for he's been good to me. And so one of the things to do is, this is why we go to church. This is why we go to small groups. This is why we have spiritual friendships. This is why we pray for each other. This is why we have devotional times where we read the Bible and pray. This is why we spiritually journal. This is why we do every spiritual discipline, corporate or private, It's all about that. It's all about because you have to act. Faith has to be exercised. Not against reason, but the exercise of faith is something reason can't do for you. And so it has to be done. And so I want to encourage you over the next few minutes, worship team, you guys can come up here. Um, Over the next few minutes, listen. um, Try it. Do it. Um, You may not feel it. That's okay. It's actually sometimes better. One of the disciplines you must have is the ability to worship, love, pray to, talk to, journal to, think about God when you're really upset, you don't feel it, and especially when you don't feel anything. You're not even mad. (laughs) You're just indifferent. That is the time it is most critical to listen to somebody when they say, you're getting out of the bed, you're going to stand up, it's going to feel awful, but if you walk it for a little while, you're going to feel better. And God isn't going to feel his head, and you're going to realize you are drowning and swinging your arms around. Let's pray. Father, um, we want so much to be able to trust you, and we recognize that Scripture teaches that our problem is not um, our rationality, that we're too rational to believe in you. We, rec- we recognize that Scripture teaches that our issue is that our, our, our reason is not um, virtuous. In that we tend to be self-indulgent, we tend to be self-justifying, we tend to not want to see, and we tend to not want to submit to the painful reasons and purposes of your hiddenness. We realize we're averse to them, and we don't we don't want to be soul-formed in painful ways, and we don't want our soul to be proved, and we don't we just don't want any of that stuff. Um, we don't even want our will to not be violated because we want you to want our will to do whatever it's supposed to, just on its own without any effort. We don't want to have to become anything. And so, Father, we pray that you'd help us to act right now. As we sing these songs, they're just you know, fallible pieces of human art. But, Father, help, please use them. And we pray that you would lead us from, from A to B on this thing. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.